Mount Rushmore, part three, Indigenous Americans. Welcome to Dad Bod History, where the drinks are cold and the takes are old. Tonight, we are continuing our series of hypothetical Mount Rushmores. In part one, we replaced Washington, Jefferson, Teddy, and Lincoln with four new presidents. In part two, we replaced the presidents with famous American inventors. And tonight, we will be going back to America's original inhabitants and replacing the presidents with influential Native American leaders. But before we get into that, how was everyone's week? Any stories from the dad front? And I'm just going to go to Cameron right now because Fight Me Girl has my attention. I am interested. Yeah, you guys may may recall. Um, this was probably a couple months back, maybe maybe even longer than that. Um, and I told a story about how we we're at the park and, mm-hmm. you know, dad just hanging out with the kids. And all of a sudden, some girl challenges me to a pull up contest. She's nine years old. <laughs> I, I tell her, now. <laughs> I don't think you're going to win. Um, so she proceeds to say, fight me. And I was so taken aback. I didn't know what to do. So fight me, girl, has been coming, coming around the house lately, wanting to play with the kids. And uh, knocking on the door, hey, can the kids play? Hey, can they ride bikes? And oh, how the tables have turned on her. So (laughs) fight me. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So all of a sudden, my kids will have to do some dishes or, you know, maybe do the vacuuming. And I'm not saying I'm being petty here, but let's just say that my house is extra clean before I let those kids out. So okay. I'm getting the last laugh on the fight me girl. Yeah. Yeah. Now all of a sudden you have the currency she needs, which is hanging out with your kids. And exactly. uh, you're not just going to be handing that out. I like it. So who won that one? Yeah. Fight definitely. Me girl. And to be clear, she would not have beat you in a pull-up contest. Let that be known. Exactly. Yeah. Just want to let America know She's that. She's 0-2 sure. right now. So thank you, Jake. Man, I like it, a man. great hype, man. <laughs> I do what I can. Uh, <laughs> all right. So I got, I guess I got two. All right. So I'll do the first one. Uh, so well, well, we, hang on. Can I, can I finish my, my other? Oh, two? I didn't realize you were done. Go ahead. By all means. Yeah. 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 I've got, I've got two others. Um, yeah. So my, my he fought youngest, her twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> My youngest, uh, my daughter just turned five. And um, awesome. I, I always say that is like prime level cuteness when they're four or five, you know, they're just adorable. They love their parents. They'll generally listen and, you know, you're their hero. So I am coaching my daughter's soccer team and, you know, it's her first time playing and, you know, it's bunch ball and, and beehive, whatever you want to call it. Um, but she's got this little friend on the team and she has no idea of the score or who's winning or who just scored or whatever. But sure. every time she gets the ball, she blindly passes it to her friend, Allison. And, you know, a dead ball or something, she'll take Allison by the hand and say, let's go after the ball. I don't know whether I should keep Allison in the game or out of the game because she's so distracted by by Allison. So this is a, a coaching conundrum. I've done my share of coaching and I am at a loss for this. So don't know what to do. We are Owen two, um, but it's a good thing. They don't keep score. Don't, so, don't panic just yet. Maybe you can make a midseason trade. Oh, well, here's that's what true. I'm thinking. The sun started I mean, one and three. I, oh my God. I mean, 
Pelican started one in 12. I, anything can happen. Here we go. So two things. One, Eric, it's playoff basketball right now. So there's going to be a lot of Suns references, <laughs> viewers. Um, also, uh, it's interesting, though, because if you can get Allison and your daughter into into sync, that could be that could be quite a, a good give and go system. You know, a little bit of a Spanish national team, Tiki Tavi. Uh, they won the World Cup doing that, so I don't see why you can't mimic the same style. Exactly. You know, if you can get a few other girls, you can run Der Mannschaft and have the machine of Germany. But that takes all eleven. Yeah, I, I, I would be happy right now if we could distinguish between inbounds and out of bounds. I, I think we've semi mastered that, but you know, we'll. That's we'll pretty see. fluid. Yeah, it's touch <laughs> and go. Yeah, we're going to keep our expectations nice and low. Um, my last story is, um, you know, all, all four of us own land and um, know the uh, the satisfaction you get from rich in land and titles. Yeah, welcome to Dutton and, Ranch. And I, and I just there's something about doing shirtless yard work. You know, <laughs> I, I don't care who you are, but I just took my shirt off. I was feeling feeling myself today. You know, a couple of the ladies in the neighborhood peeking over the over the fence. As you fill you yourself, know, just gonna say, <laughs> was yeah. Warrant on playing pour some sugar on me in the background? <laughs> you know, there may or may not have been um, a bucket know, of water. Attention, <laughs> just out of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. I, I randomly just pulled out the hose and you know just hosed myself off. But uh, there, there is nothing like shirtless yard work, and um, you know. I, you, you, you're more productive. I mean, the science is pretty, pretty uh, settled at this point. Obviously. Shirtless yard work is better than shirted yard work. So exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, I mean, my wife, she is, she is a lucky gal. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Apparently the whole neighborhood's lucky. <laughs> I feel luckier all of a sudden. Get a, Get a little snack as they're driving home, seeing camera yeah. out in the front yard. I like it. You're welcome. You're welcome, STV. Um, <laughs> awesome, man. So I got a couple. First one is um, my son, uh, one of his classmates in pre-K had a uh, birthday party, and it was at a trampoline park, you know, those indoor trampoline parks where you can literally bounce off the walls, which is super fun. Uh, and it's for all ages. Uh, and I know this because at every station, so every set of trampolines or whatever, when you got off them, there was a massage chair waiting for you to rest your weary bones. Like it, those, you know, pay wow. massage chairs where you put your credit card in and they take away all your pain. So trampoline, 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 massage chair everywhere. Huh? Yeah. That's a good idea for the uh, aged crowd. Yeah, the marketing that that was a good pairing between those two because uh-huh. there was a lot of dads there trying to keep up with their kids and a lot of dads dads needing a massage massage. Would you spend afterwards. more money on the party or the massage chairs? Uh, I'm not at liberty to say uh, at question. this moment. Yeah, it's a uh, it's in flux. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> it was smart marketing. That's all I know. Um, and then my other one, so. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember when you were kids or if you guys did this with your kids at all, but um, like when I was in high school, we do punch bug, you know, you see a Volkswagen, you yell punch bug blue, and then you punch your slug bug, right? Or yeah, slug we call bug, it yeah. slug bug. 
So we call it punch bug. Um, and my wife and daughter have been playing this for the better part of six months now. And, and they're both really good at it. And uh, <laughs> just boom, punch bug blue, boom, punch bug yellow. And, and so finally this week, I got the drop on both of them. I see punch bug blue. I say punch bug blue, no returns. And like, and then they look and like, oh yeah, good job. And I was like, yes, in the car, yes. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? My wife's cracking up. Lakes and my daughter, she's like, are you okay, dad? My son is like, can you feel it? He's mimicking me. And then like the old lady in the car next to me, she's getting turned on because she can see the raw magnetism in there. It was, <laughs> it was awesome. And I've been on a hot streak since then. I've been like four or five punch bugs in a row. So I'm riding are, high. Are there many on the road? I there are so many. I don't know what it is about Ogden, Utah, but. Huh. Apparently the punch bug is very popular here. It's doing real well. I wow. I'd have to turn that into like a Tesla bug out here. Yeah. Because every yeah. other car here is a Tesla. It, the 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 raw animal magnetism is quickly turning this into a dead bod after dark, I think. Maybe even just a pay-per-view event. I don't know where this is going, but <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I'll tell, I'll <laughs> we don't have Patreon, but we can sign up. You know, it's oh. it's just important that all of the oh, ladies my wife's in our checking lives, it. What they need yes, to know sir? that we have options. No, we're recording. Just right saying. Now. Okay. Everything's fine. Okay. I'll be good. <laughs> I gotta take it down, guys. I gotta take it down. All right. <laughs> so, so I was out at the lake today and I, uh, I I oiled up in a bunch of coconut oil. I was just uh, <laughs> yeah, my Birkenstocks did. and the thong. And this doesn't have anything to do with being a dad. This just, you know, it's just awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm done with church. The yard's done. I'm, I'm going to the lake. <laughs> Living the dream. That's all your turn, Eric. Okay, your turn. Top it. Uh, so I've also been doing a, yacht, a lot of yard work lately, but we kind of take a break this weekend because we're waiting to do some concrete pouring. And uh, I, I did have a shirtless moment, uh, but I just I only took my shirt off because I knew my wife was on the other side of the window. Uh, but I'll tell you what's critical for yard work is the right hat. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Absolutely. Okay. So I, I have a like a. Uh, oh, it looks kind of like a, a wide brimmed white fishing hat, but I yeah. had to go get more of a cowboy style with a lot of breathable holes in the top. And that does a trick. I can, it can pull off Indiana Jones look, pull off, uh, you know, day laborer look, whatever I need to at the moment. <laughs> So <laughs> archaeologist or migrant worker, those are the, that's so Eric's got range in his yeah. look. <laughs> because the only thing I'm really concerned about is not getting a sunburn. That's my biggest concern. So. And, yeah. and I like, I like how you took the opportunity. You know, you see your wife peeking through that window. You're thinking, you know what she's thinking. She wants a little peek, you know, let's, let's give her a show. Why not? Well, I couldn't see her, but I knew she was in there. Mm, so it, was, okay. it was dark, but so I, I took it off, kind of walking. Okay. I came back inside and saw her, and I saw that look in her. I'm like, "Yep, she was watching." <laughs> well done, well timed. Right. Yeah, good to look. know you still got it. You know, you're welcome, baby. All right. <laughs> well, I mean, I, we could end the show right now, but uh, yeah. for some reason, we actually have a topic tonight. So. <laughs> But uh, let's get into it. So Mount Rushmore, part three. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, 
famous or influential Native Americans. Uh, so we've replaced presidents with presidents. We've replaced presidents with inventors. Now we're going to replace presidents with um, famous or influential Native Americans. Because, um, as we mentioned on the first episode that we did of this series, Mount Rushmore used to be called the Six Grandfathers. So it was the sacred site um, in hmm. Western South Dakota. Uh, the six grandfathers represented North, East, Southwest, and above and below. And um, and then in typical American fashion, we decided to blow it up and put president's faces on it. So um, I thought when discussing this, it would be kind of cool to see, you know, obviously American history is intertwined with Native American history, both pre-colonial and post-colonial. And um, see see what we can um can do there although i i, I even kind of hesitate with this to say would we actually put their faces on mount rushmore or is there some other way that you know you know because you, you, you're destroying a sacred site i don't think that's something that we would want yeah. to do in this regard but well, I mean, that's what americans do so let's go that's what americans do yeah let's blast it to the all the inside of the grand canyon why not yeah we did it once calm down one mountain <laughs> no we've done it we twice we one stone we did stone mountain two blew okay, that one up. five uh the confederacy did that one that wasn't us oh okay we don't count yeah, they're gone there. okay yeah <laughs> they're, they're okay. gone like the that Empire. one doesn't count the mountain's still there but that doesn't count okay <laughs> um, all right, well, let's get in it. Same format as before. Um, pick four Native Americans. Uh, we're going to replace them in order from Washington, Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Lincoln. Um, and uh, let's go. Uh, Eric, why don't you get us started? Who's your Washington? So uh, I think going with the theme of Washington was the birth of the United States. I think uh, the indigenous person, indigenous leader that I would go with. Um, is Taminant or Tammany. Um, and yes, Tammany Hall is named for him. Uh, he lived from 1625 to about 1701. And he was um, the chief of chiefs of the Lenny Lenape Nation in the Delaware Valley. And he signed a peace treaty with William Penn. And for much of his life, he was uh, he started out being very peaceful with these new settlers that were coming in and, and arriving, these new arrivals. But uh, he did eventually start to take on kind of a a warlike um, tendency toward them as he fought to keep some of his land. Um, but again, there's not a ton that's known about him. Um, he did kind of end up being more at peace with the English colonists, but um, his name kind of grew in fame in the United States. He became like the patron saint of America or Saint Tammany. Um, the Tammany Society in Philadelphia was kind of built up around the idea of him. There was a, a yearly festival, um, and they they uh, they had they they figured he was kind of the real American identity. And so, as far as as far as when we talk about the birth of the nation, I'd say Tammany Tamanand um, would be a good person uh representing the birth of not just the united states but the birth of these relations between these two converging peoples uh mm -hmm. those from europe and those from the americas so tammany i like that pick i i hadn't thought of that one i like that pick though um 
I, I guess following that vein um, for myself, for Washington, and I'm actually going to borrow a page from Jeff here because it's actually a twofer. Um, and it's these two people called the Great Peacemaker and Jiganas or Jiganhase um, Sase or Jigan Sase. There we go. And uh, Great Peacemaker, um, his other name was uh, Degana Wida um, and Jigan Sase were co-founders of the Iroquois Confederacy. And because they existed pre-colonial, um, their story is told through oral tradition. Um, so it's <clears throat> a lot of it is, is a mythology mixed in with reality. Um, but according to the oral tradition, Great Peacemaker was a prophet and one of the founders of the Iroquois Confederacy. Some say um, he was he first appeared in the first or second century AD. Um, some of the, uh, how do you know, how they know Sani, um, which is the Iroquois Confederacy, those people, um, they say he appeared in the first or second century AD. Um, the founding of the Confederacy, however, is tied either to 1142 AD or 1451 AD. Um, so that's probably more likely when he existed. Um, the Seneca tribe initially rejected the founding of the Confederacy, and um, there was a conflict between them and the other nations. And that ended when the sun darkened and the sky turned to night. And there's two solar eclipses that track to either 1142 or 1451 AD. Um, he brought together the five nations of the Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, the Cayuga, and the Seneca. And then in 1722, the Tuscarora nation joined. Here's his quote, though. Um, when he was talking to Jigen Sase, who she was another Iroquois, um, and she lived on the warrior's path, oftentimes warriors would come to her um, from warring tribes or clans, and they would come in peace, and they would sit in, and she would feed them, and she would give them counsel. Um, and so she sat along literally the warrior's path, the path that went east to west, um, that the warriors would travel to when they were doing raiding parties or, or war bands. And she would meet with these warriors and counsel peace. And uh, so she met with great peacemaker and he said, here's my dream. I want to unite these people in peace. And she goes, well, how are you going to do it? And he said, it will take the form of a long house in which there are many hearths, one for each family, yet all live as one household under one chief mother. They shall have one mind and live under one law, thinking we will place killing and there shall be one commonwealth. And what's so interesting about this is that the peacemaker he assigned Jigen Sase to um, basically choose the men that would be in positions at this initial peace meeting, the positions they would have, and then there was a a, a precedent set that the women of the Iroquois Confederacy would be the ones that chose the chiefs of the Longhouse. So the chief was in charge, but he was always chosen by the women, and so it had this. Um, it was one of these interesting examples of an egalitarian society, or at least far more egalitarian um, than a lot of, you know, a lot of societies throughout the world. And, um, and the Iroquois Confederacy was a very strong confederacy at the time of the first settlers and colonists. And um, they interacted with Washington. They interacted with Benjamin Franklin. Some say that their existence influenced um, the writing of the constitution, or at least the idea of a 
decentralized republic because the Confederacy was six separate states, six separate nations, all working together under one chief, which America is now 50 states under one federal government. So there's a lot of interesting parallels there. And I think Washington being the founder, the Iroquois Confederacy kind of ties to that Washington link, both directly and, and ideologically. So I had two for that one. Uh, what do you got, Cameron? So being a uh, current Arizonan, I wasn't born and raised here, but um, it is the second best state in the union, in my opinion. Um, I, I wanted to choose two different uh, Arizona uh, natives. And both of these guys are from southeastern Arizona, the Apache tribes. Um, and, you know, there were different uh, factions and different groups within the Apache tribe, but they were well known for uh, as scouts. And I've heard stories. Um, I, I watched a documentary on them one time and pretty fascinating. They made the best scouts and, you know, obviously dry climate here in, in south Arizona. Um, they would run you know, 50 miles at a time with simply just some water inside their mouth and not necessarily taking in the water, not drinking the water, but just keeping it in their mouth. And they could run for hours and hours and hours inside those conditions because there wasn't a lot of water to be had. Um, so, you know, just tough place to carve out a living, you know, circa, you know, 1800s, way before uh, we talked about the advent of air conditioning and that kind of thing was a big moment or, you know, to even make Arizona a state. So these guys were running around um, prior to that. The first one, and these guys kind of go hand in hand. So I'll, I'll hold off on the first one, but um, Cochise was uh, well known as a, as a leader in that um, faction. He hid out for 10 years. Um, there were, there were 3000 men looking for him. There was a bounty on his head coming from California and he hid out in the Dragoon mountains for 10 years. Un, you know, nobody was able to find him. Um, there was a time thanks to Cochise and the other guy that I'm going to talk about in, in just a second in the 1860s where settlers kind of gave up on the area. They said, these Apache are too dangerous it's not worth the risk. We're going to wait to get some more people here, more developments here. And Cochise was a big part of that. Um, eventually, he was uh, captured. Um, many of his people were won over, not through violence, but they were um, bribed to kind of become scouts for the military. And piece by piece, the Apache people were kind of taken apart as opposed to conquested. And, you know, although he was captured, he uh, escaped resisting um, transport to the, the reservation. And, and, you know, he fought up until the day that he died, died an old man, you know, 69 at that, at that uh, period of time, but legendary, legendary leader um, with another guy under him that I'll talk about later, but uh, to, to stave off that amount of uh, capture and that amount of pressure is, is uh, pretty impressive. It's interesting when you fight, you know, when you, when you talk about conflicts like this or 
and not to get too off topic, but with the conflict in Ukraine and Russia and the Russians invading Ukraine, and you see how fiercely the Ukrainians are fighting back against the Russians. And it's the same thing with Cochise is like 10 years, you know, and it's just when you're fighting for your home, it, mm-hmm. it takes on a whole different tenacity and zeal that you will go to outrageous lengths to fight for your home. Yeah. You know, in your it, way of life and everything. Yeah. yeah. And, and just picture, you know, trying <laughs> to find the four of us out in the desert with 3000 people, like eventually we're going to get found. It's not going to take 10 years. And no. yeah, just, just to hold up there for, for that long is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Jeff, who's your Washington? Uh, so Washington was a big pain in the butt for the British, obviously. So I'm going to go with a man who was a, a huge pain in the butt for both Mexico and the United States. Uh, Geronimo was born in Eastern Arizona in 1829 in Apache. Um, his family was killed by Mexican soldiers. That was originally what uh, got him into the fray in terms of fighting. And originally he was battling primarily Mexican soldiers and the Mexican government in Northern Mexico. Uh, It took a campaign of over a thousand U.S. soldiers to eventually capture him. Uh, He lived out the remainder of his life, moving from place to place as a prisoner, basically of the United States government from Texas, Florida, Alabama, and Oklahoma. He was ultimately celebrated at and attended the 1904 World's Fair. Um, I liken him to Washington. Like I said, I mean, if you can hold off Mexico and the United States, we know the resources he had and what they had. And even though he only held them off for a couple of years, it's a crowning achievement. The loss was inevitable and there's no way around it. But if you're going to pick somebody to replace Washington from the Native American uh, group, that he's what I'm going with. So it's Geronimo. All right. Yeah, I figured Geronimo's, I mean, when you think of famous, especially in the Southwest living in Arizona, like he's like the first name that pops into your head. Um, So yeah, that's a, it's not a surprise that he would go, he would go um, with like with Washington. Um, all right. Uh, let's go with Jefferson. So who is your Jefferson? Uh, and I'm going to go backwards order. So Jeff, I'm going to start with you. All right. Um, for no particular reason to relate it to Jefferson, but she belongs on Mount Rushmore. It's uh, Sacagawea. She was a bilingual Shoshone woman. She accompanied Lewis and Clark, uh, through their expedition, I think that there's a really good chance that that expedition maybe doesn't even get started without her. She notoriously soothed the way with many, many very hostile tribes. She was not only a guide, but she was primarily a translator. And without her, those guys almost certainly would have been killed long before they even made a name for themselves. So uh, Sacagawea is my uh, my pick to put up for for Jefferson. Yeah, that's a great pick. Well, and maybe you didn't think of this, but Sacagawea, um, Lewis and Clark, they were exploring the Northwest Territory, the passage to the Pacific. Well, that was all part of the Louisiana Purchase, which happened when Jefferson <clears throat> was, was president. 
Good so, connection. Outstanding. Yeah. Uh, Cameron, who's your Jefferson? Yeah. I did, similar to Jeff, if you guys can connect this, then God bless you. But um, I'm going to choose Geronimo. Um, not really for a reason or anything like that um, connected to Jefferson, but he was the guy who, who kind of was Cochise's understudy a little bit younger than him was actually born in 1829 and lived until 1909. And he's well known um, as the last Native American leader to turn himself in. So part of that is geographical. I'll concede, obviously, that Arizona is, is one of the last places uh, to be settled. Um, but he was just a, a holdout, um, famous, famous. And in his uh, personality was more badass and let's go get them and let's attack them and not hide, um, you know, stick and move type thing. It was, you know, let's fight, meet force with force um, so much so that, uh, you know, generations later, people would jump out of plane saying Geronimo, Geronimo. you know, that yeah. came from him. And to have a larger than life personality like that and, you know, like it or not, that's a, that's a pretty cool stat to, to have on your side is the last Native American leader to turn themselves in. Yeah. Yeah. You mean, even if it's a lost <laughs> cause. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's a great man. Uh, I think that takes it to me. Uh, so this one. Hmm. I think I'm going to go with uh, Chief Red Cloud. So he was a member of the Ogallala Lakota tribe. And he waged Red Cloud's war, a two-year war um, that successfully stopped the United States settlement of tribal lands within the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868. Interestingly enough, William Tecumseh Sherman, General Sherman from the Civil War, was one of the signatories um, for the United States. Uh, in this treaty. And this treaty set up the um, what is known as the Great Sioux Reservation. And the Great Sioux Reservation encompassed half, basically the entire western half of South Dakota from the Missouri River on, and then a, a little bit of North Dakota, a little bit of Wyoming as well. Um, so it was a massive reservation. And, and basically this treaty, um, Red Cloud was able to Force the United States to come to terms because um, he had had one really large successful battle called Fetterman's Massacre, where 81 Union soldiers were killed, and uh, which was the largest um, number of soldiers killed in the plains at this point, up to this point, and um, and he was able to wage a guerrilla war, ambush war style for two years against the Union or the United States, and. Um, they basically just said it's we need to sue for peace here. Um, so that gave them the great Sioux reservation, which was a huge reservation. And uh, interestingly enough is where Mount Rushmore is located is in the Black Hills in South Dakota. So it would be in the midst of this reservation. Uh, however, after this um, treaty in 1868, by 1874, gold was discovered in the Black Hills. And the United States government found a way to kind of just ignore the treaty and start bringing settlers in and uh, taking the entirety of the Black Hills for themselves and pushing um, the Native Americans onto smaller and smaller reservations. Uh, and so while Red Cloud was instrumental in establishing this huge um, treaty with the United States, it was broken 
And, um, and he said, one of his quotes is, they, the United States made us many promises, more than I can remember, but they, they, but they kept but one. They promised to take our land and they took it. Uh, so even though he fought successfully against the United States, forced them to sue for peace, um, over time, the United States took more and more of um, the Lakotas and the Sioux and, and other tribes, um, the Crow tribe took their land um, for their own needs and uses. Uh, Eric, you're next. So again, I, I'm sticking with this theme of uh, why the president was chosen. Jefferson was chosen because he was kind of the president that grew the United States. And so I'm trying to find, uh, you know, obviously none of these indigenous people are going to be growing their empires much, especially with the United States bearing down on them. But I can, I can kind of pick somebody who was in opposition to all of that. Um, and that would be Tecumseh, uh, the late 18th century, early 19th century Shawnee chief who promoted resistance to the expansion of the United States. And he began as a chief um, he later became a warrior. Uh, his father had had been a, a chief until he died. His older brother had been a chief until he was killed in battle. Um, and so Tecumseh kind of takes that upon himself and takes the fight to the Americans. He, he unites a number of tribes. He creates a confederacy of his own uh, to counter the, the overwhelming force of the growing American empire, as small as it was, even to the point of joining the British uh, and helping them take Detroit in the War of 1812, but he would be killed during that war. And of course, William Tecumseh Sherman was named for Tecumseh. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I'd put Tecumseh up there. All right. Uh, so next up, that would be our Teddy. Who's our Teddy Roosevelt? And uh, I'll start this one. And I'm going to go with uh, his, he's known as Manuelito. Uh, his traditional name is Hastin Chail Hajini. And he was a leader of the DNA or Navajo people born in 1818. And he died in 1893. And uh, much like Geronimo, uh, as Jeff said, uh, Manuelito was a thorn in the side of Mexico for much of his early life, frequently battling them and winning. And then once this prop, the territory of, of Arizona was ceded to the United States, uh, he became a thorn in the side of the United States, uh, frequently fighting them um, and winning oftentimes as well. Uh, however, he's probably most known for um, leading his people through the long walk. So in 1862, Major General James Carleton um, was assigned to subdue the Navajo because they would they just would not surrender they would not um give in to the united states uh the navajo nation was traditionally in eastern arizona utah new mexico and a little bit of colorado as well so the four corners region of the united states and uh they would they would not you know uh quit they wouldn't give in to the united states cavalry and so um, what James Carleton did was he restricted where they could go, the actions they could take, um, really put restrictive boundaries on them, kind of forcing them um, that they were so restrictive that they forced them to break the rules. And then when he did, they would, he would punish entire tribes. And 
this eventually happened, uh, led to 1864. He hired a guy named Kit Carson um, to help him kind of with this project. And then Kit Carson waged a full scale scorched earth war on the Navajo, destroyed everything he could, crops, homes, uh, kivas and hogans, and uh, just anybody he could kill, he would. And uh, uh, tried to eradicate Navajo culture from the face of the map. And what they did as part of this was the long walk. So they walked them from their ancestral home in Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, uh, 400 miles to the east, to eastern New Mexico, uh, to a place called uh, Bosque Redondo or Fort Sumner. So 400 mile trek across um, very inhospitable territory and put them in a 40 by 40 mile, a 40 square mile uh, reservation in kind of just interned them there. Uh, over the next three years, um, it just became harder and harder to keep them in there and the conditions are awful. Um, but Manuelito was led his people through that period. And he was also one of the signatories um, on the treaty. Um, I don't remember it off the top of my head, but on the treaty that ended the, the long walk. And he was able to successfully get them back to their homeland. So back to Arizona, Utah, New Mexico. Uh, it's one of the only instances where a displaced nation was able to return to their ancestral homelands. Um, I mean, it happened many times, obviously the Trail of Tears probably being the most famous um, from Florida to Oklahoma, but this one, they actually got to go back to their ancestral homelands. Um, and it is now the largest of the reservations in the United States. The Navajo Nation has the largest reservation. And part of the treaty, um, it was signed as an agreement between two nations. And so de facto, the United States recognized the Navajo as a sovereign nation. So one of these rear, the Navajo Nation is just kind of this interesting um, exception to what was often the very tragic rule that no matter what happened, the, the indigenous peoples are going to lose. And in this case, um, they were able to hold. So Manuel. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for knowing when to quit, you know, when you're fighting an impossible battle and sometimes negotiating is, is your best and really only option. And yeah, like you said, I mean, they are a, a sovereign nation in and of themselves. And you can make an argument that that's the, the tribe that's, you know, maybe done the best historically at keeping their way of life. Well, they certainly have, I mean, like because of their, their refusal to, to quit or to die quietly, they, um, they were able to keep more land than any other tribe. So mm -hmm. that is something. And you know, driving through the Navajo reservation, they do have a lot of cultural sites that they've been able to preserve. Um, despite, um, so yeah, uh, Cameron, why don't you go next then? Who's your yeah, teddy? So, um, my teddy is uh, Crazy Horse, um, Crazy Horse of the Lakota tribe, uh, Lakota Sioux tribe. Uh, he lived circa 18. 41 to 1877. So, you know, we've, we've talked about great warriors and, and great uh, diplomats and that kind of thing. This, this guy was kind of both. Um, he was a little bit of an enigma in that he was known as very shy, very modest, um, 
generous to the poor and he stood out whenever he could help somebody, um, be it outside of his tribe or inside his tribe, he did. And that helped him as a diplomat that helped him as a warrior as well. And, um, you know, there's this quote that I found, it says, even the most basic outline of his life shows how great he was because he remained himself from the moment of his birth to the moment he died, because though he may have surrendered, he was never defeated in battle. Although he was killed, even the army admitted he was never captured. His dislike of the oncoming civilization was prophetic. Unlike many people all over the world, when he met white men, he was not diminished by the encounter. So just a guy, again, trying to fight for his way of life, trying to lead his people as best he could. Um, he, he took part in a lot of raids when he had to, and he's probably best known for the Battle of Little Bighorn and Custer's Last Stand. You know, it's the, the numbers behind that is kind of a modest 700 man uh, army against him. But, you know, they decimated Custer and his men. I mean, to the point where they were pretty much annihilated. Um, and it wasn't a moral victory. It wasn't a, you know, hey, we fought them off. It was no, we pretty much decimated them. So yeah. um, a, a kind man, a gentleman. But, you know, when he had to do what he had to do, he um, was was ready to throw down. Um, also, a, a interesting thing that I found about him is, and, I, and I've, I've heard this before about Native Americans, but um, he absolutely refused to have his photo taken and to the point where there are no known photos of the guy. So um, felt strongly about that, stuck to his guns and um, obviously served him well in, in a lot of ways. Well, what's interesting about that, though, is there is now a mountain with his face on it because yeah. there's crazy or like and it's it's massive. But it's not Mount a photograph. Rush. Yeah, it's not a photograph, but it's a <laughs> giant blown up engraving that forever will have his face on it. Yeah. Um, and to me, you know, when you when you think of the Mount Rushmore Native Americans in the history of this country, you know, you, you have to put Crazy Horse on that list. Yeah. And especially because, yeah, he was an incredible warrior and uh, he's heroic in a way that I mean, all these people are but there's some he's just got that um like when you think of like ancient greek heroes he's kind of got that same mythos about him mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah uh jeff what do you got um teddy being a military man i'm going with ira hayes ira hayes was uh born in arizona on the gila river reservation he received the navy and marine corps commendation medal uh, he's also the uh, the subject of the Johnny Cash song, The Ballad of Ira Hayes. And he was uh, <laughs> one of only five survivors of his platoon of 45 on the Battle of Iwo Jima. And we all know the photograph from Iwo Jima. And turns out Ira Hayes is in that photograph. And wow. any, uh, any sculpture cool. that's made after that photograph has Ira Hayes in there. So that's um, cool. Yeah, he was he was a great soldier. Uh Native American man, then I think a very fitting replacement for Teddy. All right. Hmm. I think that's a great pick. And Eric, did we do yours for Teddy? No, but I want to go back to Ira Hayes because I really <laughs> like that pick. Are you going to change um, your pick? No, I'm not going to change my pick, but um, he's buried at Arlington. But 
if you know his story, he basically died of alcohol poisoning. Like his wow. end is very tragic. Hmm. And yeah, I, I, I think his story is, is really interesting too, because he, along with many Americans in the 1940s, Americans who were of uh, Japanese descent or Native American descent and who were living on reservations and therefore were not, were not necessarily, they weren't going to be drafted, but they volunteered to fight in the war because in their eyes, they were Americans. And, and yeah, that's a good story. Wow. I, yeah, yeah. I raised, that was a good pick. I, that's, that's got me. Born in Sacaton, died in Bapchule, Arizona. I mean, these are little map dot towns in, in Southern Arizona that I've driven through and it's just, you know, somebody that great and that famous coming from, you know, super humble past. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. So no, I'm going to pick somebody. Um, I think Teddy Roosevelt, kind of the, the development of the United States, this one doesn't actually fit it, but it kind of fits his, his statuesque um, ness. And that is okay. sitting bull. Um, the Lakota leader, he fought with crazy horse at the battle of little Bighorn. He did not surrender. In fact, when they did attempt to arrest him, um, he ended up being killed and they were arresting him because they didn't want him to join the ghost dance movement was, which was, you know, one of these movements that was threatening to, you know, if, if we were to say this today, we would say this is an extremist movement uh, because how of in opposition it was to American development and growth, the ghost dance movement would be labeled an extremist movement. Um and uh, yeah, Sitting Bull, I think, is is one of those just figures in American history who stood up and did not back down. Um, and it cost him his life. There's a there's a great photo and, you know, maybe we can put this up in post, Eric, but uh, there's a great photo of Sitting Bull. And he just looks so dignified and so, you know, just sitting there and looks like he could, you know, hey, all of his photos take a bullet. Like that. <laughs> there's, there's one in particular that, you know, every history book in America has, um, it, it's just a great, you know, classic photograph of him. Yeah. He's, um, that's a good one. He's uh, he's right up there with just as far as name recognition goes, mm -hmm. Sitting Bull, Geronimo, right? Like Sacagawea. Those are your like when you think of name, a famous indigenous or Native American. Those are the ones that yeah, just come right to the top of your head. Hall of Fame right yeah. down the middle. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Uh, last one, then. Who's our Abraham Lincoln and Cameron? Lead us off. Yeah. For Abraham Lincoln, I. I guess I can, I, I, I can put this together and correlate the two because he was a great speaker and um, okay. man of few words, but uh, I, I think the, the spoken word and especially the written word is such a powerful thing for record keeping and communication and, and that kind of thing. You're only going to speak with face to face so many people in your life, um, you know, and before technology, the written word was 
you know, how you got the word out and how you really built a legacy. So um, Sequoia of the Cherokee tribe, um, born in 1770 and lived all the way to 1843, died an old man, but he's best known as um, basically codifying the Cherokee uh, language. Um, he, he interacted, he was a silversmith, and uh, he interacted a lot with Europeans who had settled in his area. It says he was impressed by their writing and referred to their correspondence as talking leaves. He knew um, that these talking leaves were the best way to transmit information to people in faraway places. So he went about um, creating a writing system for that Cherokee language. Um, you know, the, the teacher in me is super interested in this because he's not starting with the ABCs. He's starting from absolute scratch. Um, you know, this sound equals this, you know, mark on the paper. And interestingly, the first person that he taught this to was his six-year-old daughter. Um, so not only was he just making this up, but he was passing it along to the, to the next generation. And, you know, just as a, as a father, as a ex teacher, you know, that just gives me a, a soft spot in my heart to, um, to know that, Hey, this guy saw a need for something and wanted to preserve his culture and, you know, how powerful knowledge is power is, is the big, um, cliche and being able to gift your people with such a powerful weapon, um, in the fight against, you know, the settlers is one hell of a, of an impact. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the, the written language, and I know, you know, each nation had its own language. I think they weren't all, they weren't a monolith. And so for him to do that for the Cherokee he was able to help preserve Cherokee culture and knowledge and, and, that's so important, especially because at many times the United States was trying to eradicate that very thing mm -hmm. um, or twist it to become more Americanized. And so for him to be able to preserve that is incredible. And, and you guys know this better than I do, but compulsory education became a thing in like 1910-ish. Is that, is that about well, right? Well, it's interesting. Um, Thomas Jefferson was one of the first people that tried to get uh, nationalized or standard compulsory education. But in a lot of these treaties with the tribes, one of the stipulations in a lot of these treaties is that they must have a school for like schools for the native American children, which sounds great on its front, but a big part of that was to Americanize them and right. to make them propaganda. Yeah. To, to literally indoctrinate them and to remove them from their indigenous culture. Um, but yeah, the, the, the move towards a standard nationalist national education system picked up steam in the 1800s. And then by the 1900s was pretty standard. Okay. The reason I asked that is um, this, this is an unbelievable stat to me. But thanks to Sequoia, um, by the time of his death, 90% of Cherokees were literate in their own language. Mm -hmm. That blows my mind, considering it was 1843. Okay, and that's interesting because the Northwest Ordinance, which is one of the first expansions in the United States, that was one where they did say we want a schoolhouse in every section. Um, mm. 
for that's for colonists and settlers, not just for the natives, but that's awesome that he was able to 90%, you said? Yeah. 90% in 1843, which is, you know, 60, 70 years ahead of, you know, the rest of the United States with compulsory education. Yeah. I don't know if we have 90% literacy today. (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, I'll go with my last one. Uh, his name is Chief Osceola, but he's also known as Billy Powell. And here's where he's really interesting is uh, he was born in um, Tuskegee, Alabama, or in the town of Tallisi, um, near what is now known as Tuskegee, Alabama. Uh, in 1804, he died in 1838, so he's only 34 years old um, in South Carolina. He was Creek. He's from the nation of, of the Creek, but he was also of Scots, Irish and English descent and possibly African-American descent because uh, the Creek tribe intermixed with obviously Europeans quite a bit. And then they also intermixed with um, slaves and some Native American tribes owned slaves as well. Um, and so he, Osceola, was a, a mix of old indigenous Americans, new European colonists, and possibly African Americans. He's like this literal he in this one person in this one tribe was a melting pot of so many backgrounds of America. Uh, He did lead a successful resistance for two years against the United States. Um, However, he was eventually um, caught and then died in captivity in South Carolina. But the, the reason I picked him one, he was a chief and he was successful against fighting some of these early incursions of the United States for two years. Again, it doesn't sound like much, but you fight a prolonged war for two years against anybody. That's pretty incredible. Um, and then just cause he has this unique, um, genetic history, um, I just think it's fascinating. Uh, and, and I think it's just tells about how America has changed, um, you know, with, with obviously Europeans coming over and then African-Americans bring brought over as slaves and that all intermixing in this genetic um, way, I think is really fascinating and, and kind of a tells kind of the story of America. Good pick. Uh, Eric, who you got? So this is replacing Lincoln, correct? Yes, sir. Right. He's the preserver. And this one has been on my mind since. It's actually the reason why I came up. I, I if I pitched this idea, this is the reason why I pitched this idea. Yeah. Um, I'm going with Queen Liliuokalani, the Hawaiian queen. And so technically she's within the territory of the United States and is indigenous. Uh, she reigned over the kingdom of Hawaii, which was a sovereign kingdom uh, for two years from 1891 until 1893. And in 1892, there was um, there a lot of Americans uh, and American originating white settlers living in Hawaii, planters, farmers, like the Dole Plantation um, was uh, run by Sanford Dole. And he was one of these Americans and they attempted to um, overthrow the monarchy. And what happened was there was this, uh, 
what's called the Bayonet Constitution, which sounds like a constitution that was uh, put together in peace, um, but was actually threatened by all these businessmen and farmers. They said, we're going to set up a new government here because um, we don't feel safe. As, as white people who live in Hawaii, we don't feel safe. We feel like we're going to be downtrodden upon. And so they put this constitution on our desk and said, yeah, we're in charge now. And they said, we need the Marines. And so the United States saying, hey, people are in trouble. Let's send the Marines. They sent the Marines. The Marines showed up and said, yeah, uh, you know, our people say they're being threatened. So um, they put this bayonet constitution in front of her. She was under house arrest in her palace. Um, and then it was taken to the United States Congress and Congress said, yeah, we're going to go ahead and annex it. And Grover Cleveland said, no, you're not. This is illegal. This is unethical. This is immoral. You're not doing this. Unfortunately, we have elections in this country and we vote people out and in. And so I think it was McKinley. Unfortunately, <laughs> Yeah. In 1898, it was McKinley. who It won. was McKinley. And he voted to annex Hawaii. And so, um, you know, Grover Cleveland had blocked it. And so there's this coup d'etat, the Republic of Hawaii had been established, and then it was annexed by the United States. And Lilia Kalani um, actually spent time, she traveled to, to England. She, uh, the, the Hawaiian kingdom at this time was, they were trying to actually create relationships with European nations as a sovereign nation. So she had been to Europe, she had been to the United States, she had greeted all these, these leaders of, of world nations, and they had treated her um, you know, as their equal until there was this uprising there. To this day, um, there is a Hawaii sovereignty movement. And that movement claims quite correctly that the annexation of Hawaii was illegal, it was against a sovereign nation, and therefore Hawaii should be an independent and sovereign nation again. Um, they're not wrong, but the the practicality of that is, I, I don't I don't know that there's a successful way that that works. But um, Queen Lilia Kalani knew that at some point she was not going to allow bloodshed, and um, and so she kind of seeded seeded the the conflict and uh, lived out the rest of her life in her palace, um, which you can go see today. Um, but, you know, I want to get about... back. Well, go go ahead. ahead. I was just saying, I want to get back to that in a few minutes because it's something I wanted to talk about anyway. So I'm glad you yeah. brought that up. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I look at her story and find it like inspirational because she, she went toe to toe diplomatically with the United States government. Like she wrote letters. She didn't go to battle. She didn't go into combat, but she used her words and she was very well educated. And she said, here's why this is wrong. And she pointed it out in our own documents to our Congress um, and went toe to toe with them. And they still voted to annex Hawaii and remove its sovereignty. Circa what year was that, Eric? Uh, we annexed Hawaii in 
1898. Well, you said 1898, which that would be the election of McKinley, which would have been like coincides with our imperialism. Yeah, Yeah, but it didn't didn't become a state until like 1948 or 50, 57, I think 59. Um, So, yeah, but it was still a territory from 1898, 1899. We annexed it. We made it part of our holdings, our territories. Right. Hmm. Right. And yeah, I want to get back to that in just a minute. But Jeff, what is your last pick? Um, so Abe Lincoln, <clears throat> bit of a pugilist. I don't know much about his his boxing yeah, career, but I can only imagine that his reach was substantial. Um, I've yeah. seen Cameron Lehman's wingspan, and I think he and Abe are of a similar height, so I'm sure he was tough to fight with. But uh, as it turns out, one of the great athletes in American history is Jim Thorpe of the Sac and Fox Nation. He was a direct descendant of the Chippewa warrior Blackhawk, and he was the first Native American to win a gold medal. Uh, the article I read said he won the decathlon and the pentathlon by l- large margins. Um, I don't know what you know about the decathlon, the pentathlon, but it's all around athleticism. He won two gold medals at the 1912 Olympics, and he was subsequently stripped of both uh, because of questions about his amateur status, which eventually came down to he participated in some minor league baseball games. Um, I know what minor league baseball pays now. I can't imagine what it paid (laughs) in 1900. (laughs) And when he was when he was doing that, I think he was in college or whatever, and then he got paid. Everybody did it. Everybody got paid under the table, but they really went after him. I think it was literally something like three or five dollars, something like that. Yeah, it was almost nothing. Right. So anyhow, um, you know, if you give America enough time, we'll we'll at least try to do the right thing. So his his change the rules to the Olympics. (laughs) Well, so we get a pros play (laughs) even before that they restored his medals in 82. And I think that was. Uh, pre-professional uh, NBA players and uh, not having to be an amateur anymore. So uh, even before that, they they restored his medals. But um, he played in uh, Major League Baseball. He played for Boston, Cincinnati, um, New York. Uh, he was an outfielder for all those teams. Uh, this is all pre-NFL, but he played in uh, then the Professional Football League back then. The NFL MVP award is the Jim Thorpe award to this day. Um, and and he excelled in, he excelled in basketball, boxing, lacrosse, swimming, and amazingly hockey. Um, I don't know how prominent ice was when he was around or how easy it was to make how far he had to go to learn hockey. Borrow shoes for the Olympics too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a photo of him with mismatched shoes. He had just won an Olympic gold medal. And somebody had stolen one of his shoes. And there's a story about how he had to find a second shoe in the dumpster just so he could win the race, still won the gold medal. I think when he was in the Olympics, he met with like the Kaiser after he won. Like his story is unbelievable. Yeah, Yeah. it's pretty amazing. And, you know, he's widely regarded as one of the greatest athletes of all time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as with many Native Americans, uh, he was reduced. he was he was done in by alcoholism. And after, you know, he was successful in sport and managed to make ends meet through all that, uh, even though he obviously never got rich, but he could never really 
cope with life outside of sports and and all that. So, you know, he died near poverty, but um, he is arguably the greatest athlete in the history of America and a Native American. So he's my choice to replace Lincoln. I like it. That's amazing. That's that's the goat right there, because he played so many different things and excelled at so many different things. Mm -hmm. Like kids today. Yeah. If you're going to spend your parents are going to spend six thousand dollars a year from the age of eight until you're 18, you know, the same club sport, playing basketball like 60 hours a week and you're going to go D1 and that's your thing and you're going to score a ton of points in the NBA. That's great. But if you can't hold a bat much less swing it like a ball. Like. <laughs> no, and he's a gargantuan man. Look at pictures of him. He's yeah. built like a freight train. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah. he obviously could move well too. I mean, you know, it's, it's not just enough to be strong. You have to be athletic to excel mm-hmm. at any of those sports, much less all of them and get down to the decathlon, the pentathlon. He's going up against the, the best athletes in the world ostensibly at that time. And to win by a large margin. So, yeah. and, I, and I think when he won the pentathlon or decathlon, it was more like a, I, I think it was almost like a, I bet I can do that. Like, it's not that he <laughs> trained for it. He was just, Oh, I can do that well, one too. Yeah. I bet I can do that. Like, <laughs> gold medal. You gotta, do, I got to throw this as far as I can, the spear thing. Yeah, I can do that. Done. <laughs> bet I can throw this, this metal cannonball. I can do that. Yeah. He's like uncle Rico. <laughs> I bet I can throw it over that mountain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except he really could. Yeah, I know. Um, that's a great pick. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's probably one of the best athletes ever. All right. Um, so I have a question for you guys. Um, and it it really ties into what Eric just brought up with Hawaii. And uh I had alluded to it earlier when I did um Chief Red Cloud and the Great Sioux Reservation. But um reservations today, um, they essentially have no property rights, at least not in the way that we would understand them. Um, a lot of all the property is owned and is under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so it makes it almost impossible to get a mortgage. You can't take a lien against your house to go start a business. Um, all things that we would take for granted, um, you know, living in America, those are things that you can do. Um, and, and so it makes it very difficult to get that upward mobility and their success is dependent upon uh, things like casinos or being able to sell, you know, tobacco for less than the state taxes or, or whatever it is. Um, and so tying that in together with the annexation of Hawaii or the broken treaties of Fort Laramie um, or numerous other broken treaties, what is, how do we make this right? Because while we have these reservations and like with the Navajo, it's the largest reservation in America, they still can't operate and exist on an equal footing as citizens of the United States, as far as their ability to have that upward mobility. Um, So what's the solution? Is it, do we honor the original treaties? Do we Give them back the land because um, that's always a discussion point. Um, give them back the land that we said we would honor, allow them to have in 1868 or let Hawaii become a sovereign nation again. Um, do we totally revise or do away with the Bureau of Indian Affairs? Um, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I thought I'd throw the question at you guys because it's it's not one that's gone away. And in fact, I'd say over the past five, 10 years, it's only gotten more persistent. Yeah. 
I, I think there have been a lot of halfway solutions, you know, like you said, with Indian casinos. And, you know, I know I, I talked about it last week um, in the case of Monument Valley for the Navajos, they benefit from from a portion of the, the proceeds there. And there's a gift sure. shop and, you know, every car that goes in. But that's not how individuals build wealth. You know, that's that's essentially a tax that the government makes um, that that doesn't necessarily help your your average person. So, you know, to me, it's allowing property rights would be huge for them to be able to buy a plot of land and and get a loan, not not even to give give that land, even though it's rightfully theirs. Um, but I mean, at the very least, property ownership, like you like you alluded to, Jake, allows future generations to to benefit off of that because mom and dad buy a house. Mom and dad spend 30 years paying off that house. Hopefully mm -hmm. mom and dad die and then children get to get Did you the say hopefully the mom and dad die. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. It's so I, I mean, this is a problem that's been going on for a long time. We've had about two minutes to think about this. I'm almost going to certainly come up with a pretty ignorant opinion here, but sure. Um, these restrictions all apply to that land. These people can go to other places and participate in all. Very good call. The sure, yeah, no, they can. Rights. They can leave the reservation I mean, if, yeah. if they move from the Salt River Indian Reservation to Tucson. They can take place, or they, they can participate in everything that that we all enjoy. And, yeah. and again, I'm I'm not saying that this is the answer. I, I know what's going on, but why? do they stay on the reservation when it clearly holds them back so much? I mean, we've all lived in Arizona. We've all driven through reservation. It's, it's generally a pretty grim affair. I, I I've, I've often wondered why they stay there. I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, you could say it's their land, but by that logic, this entire nation was once their land. Um, I mean, I think you could say, that question could be applied to why do people in section eight housing live in section eight housing? Um, because the way the reservations have been set up is they are wholly dependent upon the largesse of the United States. So, you know, they're, they're allowed, they're given, um, call it what you will, um, some form of universal income or, you know, socialized income um, to keep them, from, you know, so they can meet their most basic needs. Um, but if they were to leave the, the reservation and try to strike out on their own, it's not impossible, but it's a lot more difficult. The risk. No, and, and it's exceedingly rare, right? I mean, yeah. anecdotally, mm -hmm. I had some neighbors when I lived in Mesa, they had, they both grew up in, uh, in Tuba City mm -hmm. and they they left for this exact reason. There was there's absolutely no future on the reservation, and they were yeah. very successful. They they started their own MMA brand, sold their own MMA gear, literally out of their garage. They they did huh. very well. They were they, they they were good people. They were financially successful, but by their own words, they had to leave the reservation to do that, and yeah. they did. Mm -hmm. um, I I, I it, it's probably tough to leave that reservation. You've got that perceived safety net, and so I think a lot of them stay out there. I don't know if I would do any different, but th there are 
Native Americans who have left the reservation system and done well. They, yeah, absolutely. But then also going back to their cultural identity, <laughs> it's all tied, you know, especially the Navajo, because they're all those, that's their, that's their ancestral land. So culturally, historically, emotionally, they probably don't want to leave the reservation because that's where their people literally are from. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also want to be successful and they want to have that upward mobility that you can get if you, um, you know, are, are able to, to build that generational wealth. So it, it's, I think they're kind of stuck in an either or, do I stay home? Do I stay with my ancestral lands and my people and my culture, or do I leave to get that upward mobility and create a future for my kids, but away from, you know, away from where I, I came from. I, and I mean, that's a question we all face in some respects, but it's a lot more sharp um, in this regard because it's a two world kind of sort of scenario. Like you said, Jeff, with the uh, Salt River Pima uh, Indian reservation, literally one side of the highway is a different world of the other side of the highway um, mm-hmm. between that and Scottsdale. Right. And, Although I would say that tribe has been able to, that nation's been able to do more um, because of their proximity to Scottsdale, but it's still a very stark contrast between yeah. the two. And I don't know if it's culturally or if it's genetic, but there seems to be a uh, stark predisposition to drug abuse and alcoholism. Most, uh, not about most of, but a lot of the people we talked about in this episode died of alcoholism. Um mm-hmm. I, I've I've heard again. This is anecdotally, but you know, as as a people, they have a very difficult time dealing with alcohol and, and drug abuse is off the charts on the reservations. So, yeah, I've heard that well, too. I, I, oh, go ahead, Cameron. I was just going to say, I, I think that um, goes hand in hand with extreme poverty. So, yeah, you know, I this is oversimplification, but you know, you solve the poverty issue or, or improve the poverty issue, then perhaps the drug abuse and the, the alcoholism improves as well. And, and again, these are generalities, but um, yeah, property ownership. And I like the the point that Jeff made that, you know, the, the choice is there to uh, live live elsewhere if, if you're inclined. It's, it's got to be a tough jump, though. I mean, you grow yeah. up there and you and it, everything you have is right there. And to leave that and to where Jake started with this, you can't sell it. You can't mortgage it. You've got to you've got to go out and I, I don't know, get an apartment, start from scratch. And right. It's it, it sounds daunting. So and um, I, I actually I'm had not, a question for you, Jeff, because you got a condo in Rocky Point for years that you shared. Right. Right. You didn't own that, though. Right. 99 year lease for any uh, non-Mexicans to own. Property and so that was that my thought. It was, water. it stayed within, huh. no matter what it stayed within, it had to be owned by, a, I guess, a Mexican company in this case, but I, I think a bank. Okay. A Mexican bank. So that, that, that was my thought here is regarding the property rights thing, because I think the big question is like, well, the reason you can buy a mortgage and sell houses in the United States is that you can transfer ownership from one person to another, regardless of nationality. You can't do that in the reservation because it's tribal land, yeah. but you can do those hundred year, 99 year leases where you could still leverage and, and I don't know if mortgage it, but you could derive income from the property without selling it to somebody outside of the nation or the tribe. Um, mm-hmm. And that way you can still leverage income 
Right. And, and you could also say that that they have some of the worst property that this country has to offer. Yep. But the, the, like you said, Jake, I mean, that that 101 is a dividing line between Scottsdale, Arizona, the prime economic driver. I mean, that's probably the heart of, of the the revenue for the state of Arizona. And right mm-hmm. across that road is extreme poverty. And it's, it's right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it's like mm-hmm. you could. And that's what I'm saying, like the way the way that this, the property rights are set up and i'm not saying it has to be totally the same as the united states but there's got to be some give or some change here between how the indian bureau of indian affairs manages it now and how it could be better managed or they could just let the tribes manage it on their own and you know i don't think I, i'm have- curious what i'm curious what the other side of the story is i mean this is not new and when you lay it out the way you did it sounds so glaringly obvious i i would be curious to know the other side of the debate i i don't know what it is so i i, yeah. I have to assume that there's at least some sort of well-intended idea i i don't know mm-hmm. i i don't want to be chiming in only at this point but a couple of things that go with the property rights is if you're able to sell that property who can you sell it to can you sell it to somebody who doesn't belong in the reservation? And now you have an issue of people coming in and buying up reservation land and it's suddenly becoming no longer part of the reservation mm-hmm. because nobody's going to come in and make an investment if they can't get a return on that investment later on. So while property ownership makes sense, means you have to dissolve the reservation in some instances or effectively. The other Part of it is if how do you give land back that people other people have lived on for 150 years and who never made the decision to take the land 150 years ago? How do you take that from them to give to somebody who has no so, connection to the land except for genealogically? So that's interesting because I thought about this a little bit speaking with the Great Sioux Reservation, which is huge or was huge and is now not. You have a lot of descendants of settlers and colonists uh, that live there now. And let's say you give back that land to the Lakota or the Sioux people and and say, all right, we're going to recognize these borders again. Then what do you do? Do you um, give them total sovereignty and say, you have an option to vote to stay or leave the United States like entirety. If you stay, then those settlers or those descendants of those settlers that live there now um, would be able to reside as citizens. They'd have like a, a, they would still be citizens. If you left, then those people would be dual citizens of the United States and the tribe. Hmm. So that was a thought I had, obviously none of this is super fleshed out, but I think, you know, when it came to the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom gave uh, Scotland the opportunity to leave the United Kingdom and they voted to remain, but they did give them that re- that memor- that referendum to say, you can leave the United Kingdom and become your own separate nation. And well, so it's not and like, like it's said, unprecedented. If, you, if, if they do start selling it off, <laughs> does, does that mean that it's no longer a nation? I mean, isn't that how the Jewish people got Israel? They bought Israel back one parcel at a time. Mm-hmm. And that's created unimaginable conflict that we're going to see for the rest of our lives. 
So the, the question I had was pertained specifically to Hawaii as Hawaii. If, if Hawaii became sovereign, yeah, what happens to every citizen of the state of Hawaii, even if they aren't Hawaiian of Hawaiian descent? Well, that's right. something that would have to be worked out. But Hawaii is not a reservation. That would be a whole different thing. And do you restore the monarchy? I don't even know if there's an heir, right? Because Lilio Kalani only mm. had adopted children. So I don't know if there's an heir, if they can identify somebody who would be the monarch. You want our monarch. You just want to set it up as a republic. And then who who gets to be members of that republic? Like how how many generations do you have to have been living in Hawaii to be considered a full citizen of the Hawaiian nation or Hawaiian kingdom? Um, you know, so that's. Okay, it's kind of tricky. Scot so, you know, Scotland I, and England is an interesting one, but the Scottish and English are fairly close ethnically. Hawaiians and white Americans are not. And not to mention that you you have you have Japanese, Chinese, Philippine, I mean people from all over the world, all over the Pacific Rim live in Hawaii. So Sure. But okay, so let me ask you. You you've said that we stole that land. We took it. I mean, they were a sovereign nation and we just took it. So how do we write that wrong? Like, that's that's the question I'm trying to get. Do we just say, well, it happened in the past. There's nothing to do about it. Or is there a way to write that wrong? And is the writing of that wrong, recognizing their sovereignty again, and then letting them decide if they want to be a part of the United States, they want to be their own nation, if they want to go join with someone else. I, I mean, I guess that's my my question. And, and I philosophically my question in all of these is if we were to go back to whatever treaties we had negotiated with these previous tribes and nations and say we are going to recognize those treaties again and the borders of those treaties as a step to redress the wrong that the united states government committed in in you know at that time is that philosophically something that we're, we're somewhere we're where to we're ready to go and i guess i would say for me the more i've thought about it the more i'm like yeah I guess I am. Now the mechanics of it are ungodly and they're going to be. Yeah, I, I think so philosophically messy. is the only way it works. I mean, the, 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 the mechanics of it are impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the mechanics right? are, well, I don't know if impossible because Europe has done this for centuries. And I know we could say culturally and ethically they're similar, but they've, they've taken land that was someone else's land and then they gave it back later. And I mean, it's happened before. And right now in Japan, um, they're claiming, they're staking claims to uh, islands that Russia has had for 80, 90 years now. Yeah, but those um, islands aren't home to like St. Louis. No. Like major American cities. The Sakhalin um, Island is. I mean, are was, there a million people there? I don't know how many people live there. But but I, I, so like, I, that's, I mean, it's a mechanics I, thing. You're, you're, I'm just saying it's not that lands have not been traded i mean alsace lorraine how many times right. did that switch in so it, it's not i mean the mechanics would be really messy but if it's the right thing to do and if the best solution is this that's that's where i'm I'm asking because i think I the think mechanics no matter what good, are messy i think it's a feel-good solution at best i mean what what land on this planet was not taken from somebody by somebody else I mean, are we going to give all of Central and South America back to the natives there? And because the, the Spanish took all that over. Oh, Eric has a point. Antarctica. 
<laughs> that's it. Like, that's it. Yeah. Sure. But we live in a nation of where we say we believe in self-determination. And so I think it, it's a little closer to home. I, I agree, Jeff. All land has been taken by many people many times over. But, you know, we, we say this and then we have these treaties. And even if we don't recognize these, these treaties and say you can have your boundaries back, we still have this problem where there's all these big reservations across the country that are living in a third world within the yeah. richest world, the richest nation in the world. And I think yeah. that's regardless, whether or not we give them sovereignty again or recognize the old borders, we have a situation where entire chunks of our nation are living in a different universe than us. Wait, so and, is and here's a, the big rub in in a, in a hundred years and two hundred years, the United States is probably speaking primarily Spanish. So. I think this is the way people move around the globe and, and I don't want to make light of it, but this is not new and it's not over. This, this, this phenomenon is not finished. It's going to continue to play out. And I don't know that you can ever go back to square one on this, mm-hmm. which is kind of what we're talking about. I mean, and, and, I, and, and we talk about broken treaties. I think the number of broken treaties is around 350, if I'm not mistaken, how are you going to get all that toothpaste back in all those tubes? You you can't. Maybe you can't get it all in the tubes, but it's not, it's, it's like, we're not even trying. Like we just kind of, I'd say like we look at reservations and we say, well, we're just not going to look at that. And we're just going to, no, I mean, okay. So are, that, are we going to get Oklahoma? I mean, what about all the people who live in Oklahoma now? I don't know. So here's, here's what I would say. I, I you'd start with the simplest thing. And that is address the reservations that currently exist and revisit the agreements of those reservations, sure. right? Because that that you are you have clearly drawn lines. You have agreements. You have certain, um, you know, you have mechanisms in place to make that reservation work as a reservation. And revisit each one, and say, is this working out for the people here on this reservation? Is this what you want, or do you want to negotiate something different? Because these boundaries are going to affect our, the United States. They're also going to affect the people that live there. And since it's within the boundaries of the United States, and we know that we do have some law of the land over this, what would you have different and have those negotiations? I think that would be a starting spot as far as, you know, land that was taken 150 years ago and has been settled and has been completely undone. That stuff you got to revisit. You got to take care of the big rocks first. And those are the, the reservations um, on which people still live and that are not working for them. But again, I think somewhat like Jeff, I'm, I'm speaking from a place of ignorance on this too. I am curious what, what descendants of these Native American people think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. And uh I think you're right. I think, I mean, ultimately, if, if, if we were to redress it, then that would be where we start. I mean, it, obviously, some of the stuff we were pushing or I was discussing is way down the road. But yeah, if that's how we start. Then that would be. Yeah. And, and how much land did the Comanche take from their neighbors? How far back do, do, do we want to go with this? Like, we're going to give this back to you, but then you have to give it back to these other people when we're done. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, change and tack. Uh, 
Jeff, tell me about Metal Lords. Okay, wow, this is a tough transition, Eric. I know. Make this a whole new episode because that that was that was really heavy, and uh, and this is not going to be heavy uh, unless we're talking about heavy metal. <laughs> so, Metal Lords is a movie that Netflix apparently thought I should watch because it puts it on the home screen every now and again. Like, hey, how about Metal Lords? And I I don't think so. I've been passing on it for a couple months, and um, anyhow, finally clicked on Metal Lords and. Um, if I'm going to give it a rating out of five, I'm going to give it three and a half stars, which maybe sounds like I didn't like it too much. Um, I'm going to give it three and a half stars because I don't know that it's a great movie, but I do know that I loved watching it. Some of my favorite, okay, and by show of hands, who all here has seen Metal Lords? I did. Okay. So it's it's a coming of age movie. It's got heavy metal at the heart of it. It's got a lot of heavy metal ethos in it. One of my favorite things about the movie is the other band. Of course, it ends up in the Battle of the Bands. I mean, I, I don't know how many classic Hollywood setups we can have, but to end at the Battle of the Bands is one of the biggest. And the other band that they end up against, they're not a bunch of reprobates that are out, you know, slashing tires and pooping in your sunroof and all that stuff. They're they're actually pretty good guys. And um, the person who needs the most change and experiences the most change in the movie is one of the main protagonists. Uh, the, the music is fantastic as impossible as it would be for this kid to go from hitting one drum in the marching band to learning war pigs in a couple months is that's beyond disbelief. But as I said, in the TikTok video, if we can suspend disbelief for transformers, then I think we can, we can make that jump and make this yeah. work. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. I love the ending. The payoff was fantastic at the end. Um, it's not a great movie, but I really liked it. And I have been diving deep into my black Sabbath catalog for the last two weeks and I've been listening to almost nothing but metal ever since. So um, it's a really good movie in my opinion. Is it a great movie? No, but did I enjoy it? Absolutely. How about you, Jake? Same way. I, I watched it and I was, I was watching it with fear. Cause the thing I hate about coming of age movies is like, like you said, the other rival band, I'm like, Oh, these guys are gonna be jerks. They're going to set somebody's drum set on fire. It's just going to be awful. And it's like, no, they're just cool dudes. Like, they're just here for good vibes. And it was so refreshing. And then uh, the, the main character, he has this love interest. Um, I can't remember her name. She's the, I think she's Irish or Scottish. And, uh, and like, he's dating her and things are going well, but now there's this, there's this other girl and she's going to seduce him. And he's, but then like, he doesn't. And he's like, no, I have a girlfriend and I'm not going to do this with you. And he walks away and it's like, Oh, that was so nice. Like I didn't have to go through this whole arc of where they break up and then she comes back at the end and she's like, I forgive you. And it's like, no, we skip all of that. We're just going to have good jams. Yeah. And, and, and the pretty girl that he shunned, she wasn't all been out of shape about it. She seemed bummed out, but yeah, I, I, I loved the complete lack of overreactions to the movie. You know, another thing I mentioned in my TikTok uh, review of this was the girl there's another thing we've seen how many times like uh, mm -hmm. she's pretty dorky and she's not cute. And 
we don't we don't find her attractive. And at the end of the movie, she takes her glasses off, and oh my god, she's beautiful. And mm-hmm. um, she underwent a transformation, but she just went deeper. Like she never got off her meds or got any less weird. Yeah. But she decked out <laughs> in some leather, and she traded in her cello for for an electric bass, a stand up electric oh, cello, yeah. and completely rocked at the end. But she didn't change. She didn't have to become somebody that she wasn't. She was still on her meds and still pretty goofy and awkward, but she got the guy in the end and it was, it was refreshing. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't know where that movie was going, but I, I'm just so happy with how it ended because it was just incredible. Yeah. And the battle of the bands, you know, they don't win the battle of the bands, but it's a great ending. They went over the crowd, you know, minor spoiler alert there. It's really fun. It, it, you- Eric, I'm curious. What did you think of the movie? So I I watched it all in one night. I forget which night, but I started watching it and I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like, I think you're right, Jeff. It wasn't a great movie, but it was fun. And, and it kept me, uh, my, first of all, uh, Hunter, I think the, the main real metalhead, his dad, I love that actor. He is freaking hilarious. Uh, he was, a what was he like a doctor and yeah. just the tension between them. And there's sometimes I, I, I felt like, I don't know, was the tension between them? Was that just like, I, as, as this, as the kid, I'm all metal. So I have to have this tension with my dad. But at the same time, the thing I really uh, enjoyed about it was the, the metalhead kid Hunter. He just, the way that kid looked reminded me of the kind of kid who it it could have been metal, it could have been Minecraft, it could have been any particular thing, whatever it was, they were all in for it. And this mm-hmm. kid picked metal for whatever reason. But you see these kind of kids, they're just like, here's my thing. This is my thing. That's all there is to it. And, and he was that kid. So it was just kind of, I enjoyed watching him develop over the course of the, the film, even more so than the the, the drummer. Kevin, was that the drummer's name, Kevin? I, I think so. But yeah. Yeah, it was a good movie. It was a good, good recommendation. I didn't, I didn't know where it was going, but like, well, I like metal music, so I'll check it out for the music. And, and I've been trying to a find really a story. A play, a, a like Spotify playlist based on the list he gave him. I just I want to listen to that list. Yeah, screenshot oh, right. the, the list of songs that they were supposed to learn. I think they got to what, like like three of them or two and a half or something. Yeah. <laughs> He he put all his money in war pigs. That's that's where he focused and it paid. And they killed it. War pigs sounds really good with the cello. Yeah. Yeah. So all right. Well, uh, unless you got a sports story, Eric, I think, uh, or Cameron. No, I'm just I'm dying inside right now. That's oh, because you haven't been able to watch the Suns. You will have a story. I've been watching the whole time. (laughs) It's not going well. Oh. It's currently 112 to 98 and Phoenix is on the wrong end of it. And Eric has held up remarkably well. I'm proud of you, Eric. It's bad. (laughs) It's bad. Listen, they called every freaking ticky-tack foul for the Pelicans and not a single one for the Suns. Chris Paul's getting like beat up by Alvarado and they're not calling anything. But there you go. That's like when when, when you blow the the top on your steam cooker. Yep, there it goes, (laughs) Also, I'm kind of hour and a half. I'm irritated 
the Suns aren't playing well. They're just playing like crap. They're just, they're slow. They're sluggish. They're bad passes. It's all the stuff I, I hate as a coach. They're doing it. And you can tell they're just not into this game. And it's they can't like shoot. missing an important player. They can't shoot to save their lives. <laughs> uh, these are guys who can shoot and do throughout the season. And they can't hit a three. It's and Eric, if, if this is the turning point of the playoffs for them, it's on you for not watching it. As a no, fan. I have been just, watching. Just That's so what I'm saying. Well, I never you, you turned didn't it give off. Your all. You didn't put your whole Yeah, but were you really watching with Cameron on this? You didn't you see were, the they know. half of my body. No. <laughs> so, anyways, that's my sports committed. That ends our sports segment for tonight. So. <laughs> hey, hey, listen, I, I really enjoyed this episode. Uh, when I first heard what we were doing, I, I it didn't pique my interest, but the more I dug into it, I, I personally enjoyed going through these people. Um, my grandfather was a big fan of Jim Thorpe, and um, somehow this – podcast i keep bringing up my grandfather and whatnot and and that's a great thing because he was a good man but i i enjoyed this all the way through and um even your your question later on that got a little heavy but it's it's an interesting topic and i i really enjoyed this tonight i did too and i yeah, I, yeah it was good all around and um it's kind of fun exploring you know these things i didn't know a lot about until i started researching for the episode and and i think you know even though the question was heavy um I think it's good to ask those questions and, and have an open dialogue about it because it's, you know, it's good for us. Um, well, that's, that's, that's an interesting question of how do you write wrongs? And that's just on the basis that that general question is just a great individually question. as, as families, as groups, as, as people, as nations, like how do you write wrongs? And it's, uh, it's, well, it's well, I would say much, much like with a family squabble, the longer that wrong exists, the harder it is to mm. fix. And it's not yeah. a transactional thing, too. It's not a tit for tat. It's not an eye for an eye. It's, oh, you know, I did this to you, so I have to undo it. You kind of can't undo it, first of all, just practically. But even if you undo it, you need to do a little bit more because of the time yeah, elapsed since it. So it it is very very complicated. Well, and that's a great point, Cameron. And and you're right. It's not mm-hmm. transactional. It's a relationship, and we've got to, It's more about repairing a relationship than it is yeah. about. Okay, well, we give you this back. We're good now, right? You want you aren't angry yeah. at us anymore. And I think, and it where it's like, no, I'm I'm trying to build that relationship with you again. And I'm saying this on a personal level, like. Mm-hmm. You break someone's trust. You want to build it back. Well, that takes work. Um, and it isn't necessarily just going back and trying to undo the bad thing you did. Um, mm-hmm. So that's you. Yeah, rubbing sometimes off on it's me. just that's, it. <laughs> that's Jake's turned out to be a feeler. You know? Yeah. It's just the opportunity to, yeah. Trust again and, and to say, Hey, I, I'm willing to redo this relationship. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Exactly. Just between two people, let alone two nations. Exactly. Um, I think it's a, a good spot to end. I thank you guys for joining us tonight. Um, I, I hope you, whoever's watching and listening, you enjoyed it. And uh, if you liked what we uh, talked about tonight, make sure you like, subscribe, follow on, on all your media platforms and have a great day in history. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>